Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Brian Hervey, who serves as, wait for it, Vice Chancellor of University Advancement and Alumni Relations and President of the Foundation at the University of California, Irvine. Welcome, Brian. Well, thank you, Brent. Thanks so much for having me on. And yeah, it's a long title. I have to have my, my business card has to fold over, you know, to get it all that on there. But. <laughs> well, we'll think of what an acronym could be or something. I don't know. This sector loves acronyms, but uh, I really appreciate you making time. Uh, it's a Friday. Uh, it's in we're in April for our listeners, and had been hoping to connect with Brian for some time. Really excited about uh, sharing his professional journey. And one of my go-to questions, Brian, has really been to better understand the starting uh, point as it relates to the advancement career path. And oftentimes that can be traced back to your own university experience, which I know is the case for you uh, in in a certain degree. And so tell me about um, junior year of high school, Brian, who was that guy? Where was he? What was he into? And what led you to Texas A&M University? Well, so uh, thanks for that question. And uh, so my background was being an army brat. So I grew grew up moving around the country and the world, uh, following my father who was in the U.S. Army, and uh, that was kind of the family business. So my grandfather was a Army aviator, my uncle was an Army aviator, my father was, and so, you know, my path growing up, I thought, well, I, that's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a pilot uh, in the Army and fly helicopters. So, uh, so I went to Texas A&M. I was in the Corps of Cadets, which is uh, an ROTC program uh, on an Army scholarship. And so, so I was going through just putting along thinking, you know, I would, I would, uh, go through that experience and then go into the military and, and, uh, things changed on my senior year. It was 1992 and, uh, we were, we were coming out of the Gulf war. And so the military was in something that they do every so often reduction in force. And so, uh, they didn't need all these second lieutenants coming out and, and going into the military. So, I was faced with a choice at that point of whether I wanted to follow that that uh, kind of dream. I mean, I it was just sort of what I was going to do, uh, or go into a, another field. And so, it uh, the world opened up to me really, and and so I decided to. I still wanted to be in government service, and so I did a few different things. I just, I told the army that I would uh, take the option to not go in uh, at that point. Uh, they were offering us. It's a kind of a long story, but they were offering us. We were a lot of us wanted to be combat officers, like I wanted to be a pilot. Uh, and they wanted they needed logistics people and quartermasters and you know things that you have after a war. And so uh that was not as uh enticing. And so I I took the option to go into law enforcement. And so um so I did that for a while and and so I got this wonderful uh number of years where I got to do different things. So I was in law enforcement and I uh ran a restaurant and I um Goodness, I was in in insurance. Uh, I was in the car business, ran a car lot. I just did different things and and really got to experience uh, that the life my life wasn't laid out in front of me in, in nice in a nice way and and I could just talk to people and learn and and get to try new things. So I loved it. Um, I ended up. Uh, and can I just so ask my- Brian, like varied, very unique starting point, right? Military insurance car sales. I've done a lot of these interviews. No one has had this starting point leading to advancement leadership. Is there, you know, restaurant work? Is there a common thread of what you enjoyed, despite those being very different contexts and different goals and objectives and industries? Did you find yourself gravitating gravitating toward a certain type of work? You know, I think the relationships was the the key thing. So even as a police officer, relationships are very important. Uh, how to manage different kinds of people, people coming at you for different things, whether they're happy, sad, hurt, you know, all kinds of different situations. And so I I sort of look at all of those jobs as that relationship part was the key thing that was a driver for me. And getting to meet new people, new experiences. I uh, ended up back in in uh, in financial services. So at a and I was political science and business. And, um, and so I ended up uh, sort of gravitating towards um, uh, the financial services industry. And, and I ended up doing that for a number of years, which sort of led into the next thing. 
which, so I was a, um, a financial advisor with Dean Witter Reynolds back in the day, which of course, all of these industries have gone through a lot of mergers. So now I was with Morgan Stanley and, uh, and that's when I made the change. So when I was at Morgan Stanley, um, I was a financial advisor. Uh, my wife and I uh, were pregnant with our first child. And uh, and so uh, it was a little bit of a difficult pregnancy. And so when when Brandon, my son, was born, uh, he uh, ended up in a neonatal intensive care unit. And so everything's fine now. So this is a good story. No, no, nothing bad happened. Uh, but it was life changing, right? So your new parents and you're you're going through this situation where you've got a child in the hospital and you know dealing with the health issues and and uh, and you know while also trying to build a career. And so it made me really think sitting in that hospital in that neonatal intensive care unit. You know how does this stuff happen? So the the hospital we were we were at was uh, Scott and White Hospital in Central Texas. Uh, Temple, Texas. And so, uh, but we were living in Bryan College Station, uh, A&M area. Uh, I never moved far from from uh, the mothership there at A&M. And so, um, so basically what happens is we're, we're a couple hours from home, uh, staying in Temple with him in the hospital. And, and I, I watched the, the doctors and the nurses and the medical staff and all the people there at the hospital do everything they could uh, to make us comfortable, to take care of him. And again, good story, no, no, no uh, real problems, but, but it was, you know, you're looking at the equipment and you're looking at the, the staffing and you're looking at all of this and thinking, well, you know, it could be better, right? It could be, uh, there could be a better situation. We can take more care of more patients. We could have the, the newest, nicest equipment. Um, you could have more staffing, all these things. And so I started asking about that. And asking about, you know, how how is what's the funding model for this hospital? And it's a nonprofit hospital. And so uh so when once Brandon was home and we were uh uh on the mend and, and he did again, did great, uh, I started looking at that and, and I volunteered with the March of Dimes. And uh because the NICU had received a lot of support from the March of Dimes, they were one of the organizations that was buying equipment and you know, doing sort of grassroots fundraising. So uh I went. Went home. I joined uh, their group and said, "What can I do to help?" And so I ran uh, my very first fundraiser. I think it was about 1998. I ran a jail and bail fundraiser. Uh, if you remember those kind of events, I don't see those yeah. very often yeah. anymore. But as a volunteer, as a volunteer, and so we did really well. Uh, we had a really successful event, and they said, uh, "So now, would you run all of our fundraisers and just join the board as the vice president for fundraising?" And I said, uh, again, still as a volunteer. And I said, absolutely, you know, I'll, I'll do that. So I'll, you know, day job being stockbroker, financial advisor, and then uh, doing lots of fundraising. And and as I started doing that over the next uh, couple of years, I was asked to do more fundraisers in our community. A church wanted help building a, a church building and um, an alumni organization needed help at AM. I mean, I started just kind of doing it for fun. Um, and in the course of doing that, uh, you started to kind of meet more people at the university and I got more familiar with the Texas A&M foundation. And so uh, long story short, a gentleman named Glenn Pittsford uh, who's now retired, but was the director of plan giving at uh, Texas A&M at their foundation. Uh, we had lunch one day and he was just describing what he did. And I said, wow, what a cool job. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know, in terms of what you're doing. And I had that financial planning background. So uh, I, I, he made an offer. Uh, for me to come to work for uh, the Texas A&M Foundation as they began their billion-dollar campaign, and uh, that was 2001. So that's when I sort of made the leap. I decided I'm going to leave the financial services industry and and get to do what I was really enjoying doing around fundraising full time. And it was just a it was a just a great experience, a great organization. Uh, you know, we it was a great campaign. We raised 1.4 billion in that first campaign. Uh, and through the course of the campaign, I, I went from plan giving to uh, I was a director of development uh, for student affairs. And then I was the executive director of development for the medical school. So I was getting back to sort of that healthcare roots a little bit. Um, hey, Brian, can I so just that kind of let on? This was about a decade after you'd graduated. You'd been, you know, on the varied career path, have yes. the sort of uh, crucible moment, maybe with the family NICU experience, that's your gateway into volunteerism. Um, what had your relation in your, in your, in the backyard of Texas A&M? And so 
at the same time, it sounds like despite that proximity and then even your own sort of exposure to the philanthropy world by way of March of Dimes, et cetera, sitting down and having that lunch with, uh, I believe you said Glenn. Yes. Was an eye-opening moment. And so that makes me feel like even though you were so like A&M's on your resume, you, you, you live there and learn there, you're, you're living near it for a decade, but maybe it sounds like you didn't really understand the business of philanthropy in the context of A&M until that launch. That's, that is very accurate. No, I just started learning basically the volunteer side of fundraising and that more, uh, as I mentioned, sort of a grassroots fundraising. I did, I had never really thought about where do these big gifts come from? (laughs) How do people get from there to making these multi-million dollar commitments and other commitments to, uh, to higher education, healthcare, other charitable organizations. So it really was, it was a new world. Now we have hosted other people who have started in the financial services world broadly. And actually it seems like plan giving is a common sort of segue or entry point, um, given that in a certain regard, you know, in a plan giving role, you're still kind of a financial advisor, probably as close to being one as any other, you know, role in the advancement sector. And so just tell me about that transition and going from a really well-known brand, obviously Dean, Dean Witter, Consolidate with Morgan Stanley, and, and, you know, going through some of those changes. But how different did the job feel when you were sitting at your desk with a set of leads or prospects that you were trying to get in touch with? Uh, with Morgan Stanley uh, being the banner that you were you were holding uh, versus it being a and Did it feel the same, very different? Like what were those first impressions of the, the transition? You know, I, I'll tell you, I felt different about it. I felt like I was, it was a, whole, a, a sort of a higher calling to be reaching out to primarily alumni of Texas A&M uh, to, to have those relationships and those, those conversations. But the, the reality is, and I know some folks in our business don't like this particular analogy, but um, that we are salespeople. I mean, we're, we're, the, the product we're selling isn't this sort of tangible thing or a service necessarily, but we are selling something. And that is you know, really the opportunity to be engaged with our great organizations. And, and so I think those same rules around selling, whether it's selling, uh, you know, financial products or advice or advising people on their, on their charitable giving, uh, I think those same skill sets apply. And, and, you know, I'm driven now uh, even more, you know, as you get sort of through the management ranks, uh, about, you know, we use Salesforce. That's the program that we happen to use here. And, um, you know, and so I think that, you know, thinking about all of those rules of how I ran my day and I need to do this many calls and I need to do this many outreaches, you know, this, this week or this month and this many in-person meetings that has carried me through, uh, all of those careers, uh, but especially in financial services and then moving into plan giving. So when you think about the best sales organization that you were part of, would you say that it was Morgan Stanley or or one of the other groups that you were part of? It was Morgan Stanley because they were a big company and they had a system. And so learning that system really helped me in getting in development. And if every development professional listening could go and do a you know, shadow internship of the absolute best financial advisors that you had exposure to at Morgan Stanley... What do you think they would find most surprising about how those individuals conduct their day or their week or or do their work relative to maybe what they might be experiencing in, in the typical advancement organization? You know, I think what drove me in that and, and what I have carried through to this career uh, is certainly it, it's a little bit of the competitive edge. And so what what you learn, especially with organizations, especially in financial services, banking, insurance, um, you know, they're 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 bringing in a lot of people to keep a few, and so you know, I would say, somewhat fortunately, in the in the charitable side, it's not that cutthroat, uh, at least at most organizations. Uh, but I learned that, and it's, it stayed with me that I never sort of take it for granted what we do and that it, 
ultimately, I have to provide a return on investment to the organization. And, and then I look at every single position within my organization from the same standpoint. And that really came out of that Morgan Stanley or you know, financial services um, experience that we had, you know, very, very, uh, uh, you know, metrics that were very laid out. There was a system, they would teach you how to do it. Uh, and sometimes in our industry, we don't really tr treat, uh, we don't really train based on sort of a sales model. We train yeah. on a little bit of a different model. And right. really, it's both, right? It's it's the relationship side that is so important and the mission that we're, we're carrying out, but it's also the, the production. And I know that sometimes that that falls by the wayside a little bit. Yeah. I mean, look, you used the word cutthroat before, which I'm sure is not a word that uh, many folks are sitting around saying, oh, I wish our organization were a little more cutthroat. But if I were to reframe it and say uh, intensity, you know, what if there was a higher level of intensity in the advancement sector? And how do you balance the sort of fact that it's, you know, some people are in this sector precisely because they don't want to feel like they're in a cutthroat you know, boiler room environment, pushing a product they might not really believe in and people who may or may not need it. But I think that you do see this like common mission alignment where people similar to what you felt. And I, I started my work as a volunteer for my alma mater, Brown. That's how I kind of stumbled into this sector. Um, it feels really good to inspire people to give, to challenge them to give, to push them to give. Um, but sometimes the intensity is not there. And we see it in data, right? Because we have a lot of data on the Evertrue platform. And there are times we look at this and we say, wait a second, there, there are development officers who had three visits last month, like in 20 working days, what possibly could, could they have been doing that was a better use of time than actually having conversations with donors? And, and, and I think that you know that's probably, no matter what system you're on, if we went in and ran analysis, you're going to see some pattern that is similar to that that might get snuffed out a lot sooner at Morgan Stanley. No, I think I think you're exactly right, Brent. And I, I think that I think that what we're seeing in our industry is we're getting we're actually moving a little bit in that direction. I don't think we're losing the things that make what we do very important to organizations. But that return on investment piece is becoming more and more important to every one of our organizations. As budgets get tighter, you're looking at every efficiency that you can get out of the organization. I think that each of us has to think about how, how do we play in that space? What is our role in that space? And are we providing using technology, using all the tools at our disposal, are we, are we as efficient as we could be? And, and, and I think that um, if I were to say I've seen one thing change in the last 20 years uh, in our industry, it has been that focus on ROI. It's much more said in almost any context uh, as we talk about our industry now, where it used to not be as much. Um, it used to be much more... Um, and I would even say that that at, uh, a lot of organizations I've seen that you know they they've had the ability to be a little bit more reactive maybe to the constituencies that are out there. That is no longer the case. I think we have to be proactive. Well, I think the other fundamental difference, right? I am sure when you were working at Morgan Stanley, you know, let's just be honest: the the quality of the leads that you're dealing with is going to be very very um, different and. I think one of the massive advantages that the advancement sector has that honestly is a crutch sometimes is the fact that for the most part in targeting an alumni or parent community or even a friend community, there's a pre-existing relationship, a pre-existing commitment. Rarely are we going out and trying to cold prospect spec into somebody that has no relationship with AM or no relationship with UC Irvine. It, it would almost be like if Morgan Stanley had you know, 300,000 people that had made deposits into their, you know, bank account at a small level, for example, but didn't yet have a financial advisor, well, that would be a lot more fun, uh, you know, or a lot more um, 
of a natural maybe conversation when, and obviously some banks do work, right. To go to, from retail to the financial advisor, sort of um, up the pyramid, if you will. Uh, but I, but I feel like that is really unique to this advancement sector where we have such a better starting point than most sales organizations that are kind of cold prospecting. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's, you mentioned the differences and that higher calling I mentioned. That's why I think that exists. Cause I really feel like I'm having a conversation that's not designed to personally benefit me. Whereas in financial services or other things, there's a, there's a tie to that call and my personal income in most cases. That's not true in our industry, which is good. I think that's the way it should be. Um, but it so, makes it makes me feel better at the end of the day that I've connected people with our organization. You were at AM for roughly a decade. And when you think about that time, what were some of the favorite memories, favorite gifts, favorite trips or crazy experiences that that maybe stand out? You know, it's it, there, there are a lot of them as you as you can imagine, but I I can remember my first one million dollar check uh that a that a donor signed and handed me, and and it was uh, just a wonderful, a wonderful person that wanted to support. As a matter of fact, it was the Corps of Cadets, that military ROTC program that he was supporting. And so uh, I remember, you know, leaving the office, very excited about this meeting and, you know, driving to uh, kind of uh, Texas is pretty rural in certain places. And and so this was a, a gentleman that lived in a in a small Texas town on a Which ranch. town? Brenham. Brenham, Brenham Texas. Texas. All right. I'm pulling that up on Google Maps, folks. Here we go. Brenham, Texas. And so he wanted to meet at a little sort of roadside burger place in Brenham, Texas, outside of his ranch. And, and so we're just having this uh this great conversation at these little high top tables. And and he said, you know, I'm ready to support uh some students that that went through the experience that I went through at my university. And he pulled out his checkbook and wrote that, you know, one million dollars on a on a paper check and handed it to me. And and uh, you know that that feeling of wow, you know, this is what I'm here for, and this is what uh, you know the good that this this new endowment he's established can do for the university. And so Brian, I, I think that was one of very memorable uh, lunches. <laughs> I love it. I love just seeing somebody stroke the million dollar check at the high top burger joint. I mean, incredible, but. Can I ask you, did you ask him for a million dollars? I did. Yeah, we had we had talked about uh, that proposal. I didn't have to ask that day. He'd already received He'd seen it. Yeah. Um, but did you expect that to happen at the meeting? I did not. No, it was this was a step, a step in the process and uh, certainly hoped, but did not know. So it was it was also the surprise of getting it right there that day. I love that. What a what a really cool memory. And then uh, it's all starting to make sense now because uh, you know you pivoted into the healthcare fundraising sector, and it looks like you came full circle with Scott and White uh, Healthcare Foundation. That had to be pretty fulfilling. It really was. To, to, so yeah, exactly to your point, Brent. I got to go back to the hospital where my son was born, and we had that experience. And I went uh, there as their originally executive director of plan giving and then campaign director and eventually vice president uh, for their uh, development program. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing uh, to be back there and uh, you know, to top that off, you know, I told the story about the NICU and not being uh, great uh, in terms of the facility, the people were amazing, uh, but it was in the old part of the hospital and it was an older NICU. We got to build uh, in my time. Once I went to Scott and white, we, built a full children's hospital um, thanks to a wonderful uh, gift from a, a central Texan uh, there, Drayton McLean, who was our board chair, uh, owns McLean Distribution Company. It's all over the country, but right there out of Temple, Texas. And so he uh, made the, the large gift for our children's hospital. And we got to build a brand new state-of-the-art uh, art NICU uh, to take care of many of, of those central Texas children that needed that care that couldn't get to the bigger cities. So it was uh, uh, a wonderful experience. And like you said, it was full circle. I felt like I came back to what got me in development in the first place. What should people, you know, our audience is primarily education advancement um, leaders and, and uh, practitioners. What should that, uh, what should this audience understand about healthcare philanthropy? What were the biggest differences? What were the 
most consistent uh, uh, experience as to what you uh, had had uh, felt at at A and M. So I'll 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 say the the differences between higher education and healthcare fundraising. Uh, it, for me, most of it, it has to do with uh, there's there's a motivation factor, but that motivation uh, factor manifests itself in time. So the time it takes between a higher education typical gift process, uh, you know, sometimes it can take a year or multiple years to build that relationship and get to the point where you know maybe there's a test gift and a few other gifts and then they make that ultimate gift. With with the healthcare sector. I find that that timeline is truncated and, uh, you know, more of a grateful patient model. So the, uh, so a grateful patient often is going to make that gift uh, very quickly. And the longer it takes in that cultivation process, I think it's the less likely you're going to receive a large sort of passionate commitment to your organization. So that was the biggest difference for me is that, that all of a sudden I was seeing very large gifts in a very short period of time. And so um, I actually, uh, I'll be teaching a, a, a little bit of a, some coursework at, at the Madison Institute this summer on a grateful patient fundraising, because we really looked at it and tried to study what makes that different and how do you implement a program? Because we found that so many healthcare organizations actually weren't doing, they weren't making that shift and weren't thinking about that timeline. And so for me, just the, the kind of the bottom line of it is that, you know, you really want to track your census in your hospital, track the outcomes to the extent you can have that information. Uh, and you'd get, get that really through the physicians. You don't want the exact medical records, of course, but by working with your physicians, there's a way to know that this patient came through. They're very happy. It's been 60 days or so. We usually look at that sort of 90 day range uh, as a really, really important time to contact that patient and, and, uh, offer the opportunity to be involved and to support, uh, as opposed to higher education where you might, you, you have those names in your database, but you can kind of get to them when you get to them, you know, in a, in a way, but you can't with patients. I think it's back to maybe the intensity comment earlier, which is there is sometimes a feeling where in higher ed, you kind of have you know, 50, 60, 70 years to get to them versus 90 days. And what if we took more of the 90 day mentality in higher ed, would there be benefits or would it actually create unnecessary pressure or or, or conflict? And I think like calibrating around the right level of intensity that is maybe pushing harder, but, you know, not being too pushy is, is probably a real tough balance to strike. It is. And, and with, with patients, it's somewhat easy to tell what the triggering event is. It was that treatment. With higher education, what is the triggering event? Is it graduation? Is it something? Is it coming to a reunion? Is it, is it something else that sort of triggers that passion again? And I think in high, on the higher education side, we have to create those. We have to create those opportunities, whether it's through reunions, homecoming, sporting events. We have to create those triggers that allows somebody to reconnect with us and then create the opportunity to follow up. I agree completely. And I think that, you know, the, the triggers in my mind that are probably the, the biggest opportunities for that kind of accelerated model. Um, one, I actually would just say is, is giving um, straight up. And I think that, one of the areas we're spending a lot of time focusing on is ensuring that we're aligning stewardship with the future value of a relationship as opposed to the immediate past experience. And, and, you know, for example, it is really common as we spend time, you know, with our customers in, in the sector that a stewardship matrix might look something like this across the top, it's gift amount. And on the side, it's action taken. And then you start seeing examples when you mine data of people that are in the $100, $500, sub $1,000 donation band with incredible wealth. And they're getting the $100 stewardship experience instead of the 90-day post uh, uh, sort of discharge hospital 
intensity that maybe you know you're you're talking about. And then the other area where we're seeing a ton of opportunity is around career progression. You know, so many people, especially right now, there's so much focus on higher education and outcomes and driving, you know, more, as you said, ROI on sort of what is the value of the degree. And we're seeing so many examples where alumni are are getting promoted into big jobs. And unless it surfaces on a Google alert, hearing nothing from their alma mater. And so how do we sort of be more systematic about more segmented outreach post donation happening and more segmented outreach post career progression to try to create more of a catalyst for conversation in the manner that you're describing? What's your reaction to those concepts? I really, I I agree, Brent. And I think that, so on, on one hand, I think a lot of the old truisms that we learned way back about advancement and and that the best predictor of somebody making your next gift is who made the last gift, you know, and just kind of looking at those trends is hugely, hugely important. And I totally agree. That's the best predictor that we have. Uh, and then you you couple that with technology, the technology that's out there with EverTrue, with other platforms, other other tools that we have now. To where on your phone, <laughs> you can be walking into a meeting with somebody and be able to know all of this information about that person. It might predict uh, and, and may make your conversation and your outreach to that person so much more meaningful to them. And so, uh, you know, just another way our, our industry is really changing. But uh, I like what you said about the, the the gifts, because that's, you know, still we've we've developed all these high-powered algorithms and ways to to do the data analysis. But at the end of the day, this is still a numbers game and it's about relationships. Totally. No, I mean, it's like that guy who cut the million dollar check at the high top table, you know, the difference I, I would argue between, you know, that check happening and not is you. Like it, it is about the human relationship. Everything else about that guy is affinity, is interest, is passion, is wealth. You could have modeled it however you wanted. The difference is it's engaging the person, it's having the conversation, it's doing the discovery, it's pushing somebody to dream bigger. And I think that's where um, we are We are making progress, but man, we've got a long way to go. And and also it's April of 2023. And so I'd be crazy, you know, not, I mean, to your point of walking in with something on your phone, we, we are just, you know, now I think starting to, scratch the surface of what's possible with generative AI and ChatGPT, And there's so much historical data that's just sitting in our systems. And I don't care what system it is, that is not well synthesized, that is not well summarized, that I think when you start seeing companies like ours and others really harnessing that technology, we're going to radically accelerate what's possible in a way that should really elevate the donor experience while hopefully making the fundraising job a lot more about the relationship building and a lot less about hunting and pecking through a system or doing the data mining. Absolutely. And and when you talk about all of the folks in our sector being professionals, that's only increasing. We're getting better and better. Our, the people, all of us, are having to get better and better with, with tools, technology, the relationships themselves. Uh, you know, there's a real shift happening and, you know, the, uh, I don't. I can't predict exactly where this is all going to go because it's changing so fast. And then you add you add COVID to that, and what that has done to our sector and to our industry. Uh, you add the market pressures of salaries and and sort of these, you know, that certain organizations certainly uh, and it makes sense for them, right? That they would look at that ROI and say, well, I just need to pay enough to get the best person. And uh, you know, I think that. Uh, those changes, I think, in a sense, um, are are good, but also make it a little tougher uh, to get the kinds of returns for our organizations that we all want to have because, um, you know, the costs are, are, are sort of skyrocketing. But uh, luckily, with the, I think the technology is bringing some costs down. Yeah, no, and I think there's there's a lot, lot more to do. And uh, it just feels... You know, we started Evertrue right as sort of social media was exploding and the iPhone and Android were accelerating. And it was kind of this confluence of social, mobile, 
traditional systems with a focus on advancement and, and, you know, meeting in the middle was really our, our focus. And, and now I kind of feel like this, this AI wave that is just starting is like that. It's like mobile and social, except faster with such clear business applications. Whereas sometimes it took a little more evangelizing around like, what is the potential of, of harnessing some of those prior trends? Whereas it just feels like, it's so obvious with this trend. Now it's how do we weave this together effectively um, to streamline every business, but in our case, uh, the business of advancement. So now it's mid, it's let's call it 2015. And at that point, like most lifelong Texans, you thought it was the right time to move to California. <laughs> about That's right. That's that right. and what all your cousins and friends and family, uh, you know, said, and no, I'm just kidding. You don't have to say that, but, uh, but that is a big move. I mean, lifelong Texan, uh, moving to California. Uh, tell me about it. Tell me about what led to it. It looks like healthcare was kind of the, the, um, bridge, uh, in, um, that had to be a big decision. It was, you know, so I was, uh, I was serving on the board of the AAMC association for American medical colleges, uh, at that time. And so, uh, Baylor, Scott, well, Scott White, the hospital system where I was working, we had 14 hospitals uh, at the time I was uh, VP there. And, and so we were going through, it, it was right around the time after Affordable Care Act, where uh, there was this idea that every hospital system needed to be really, really big. And at the end of, of that, uh, that transition, that there might be, say, 10 really big hospital systems across the country, because everything was sort of moving to bigger and bigger and and um, and so we had uh, the hospital system I was at, Scott and White, were in conversations with Baylor Health in Dallas. And so a much larger hospital system. I think at that time they had 34 hospitals-ish uh, at that point uh, in 20, this would have been about 2012, 2013. And, um, and so we, we sort of went into this process uh, of talking about a merger. And that did happen. So in in 2015 is when that merger was was sort of official, and so uh, I loved it. I mean, I really learned a lot, and and uh, the organization, both organizations, were great to me, um, and gave me lots of opportunities to be a part of that, but also decide my destiny at that point of where I wanted to go. And so, uh, so I was in this great position. I was, um, I went to a board meeting and I asked the question among the other institutions that were in the room that you know I had just gone through this merger and. Was thinking about my future of whether it was going to be right there and with the new organization Baylor Scott and White or or if I wanted to find a new opportunity because I love building I love building teams I love change management and so uh, so about a week after that AAMC meeting I received a call from the recruiters for UC Irvine that they were about to uh, embark on a uh, billion dollar plus expansion in in the on in the health side. And so uh, I flew down here and, and uh, I traveled the country, as many of us do, uh, a lot more before now that we do now, I'm afraid. But uh, uh, at that time, I was I was a road warrior. And so I, I had been traveling all over the country and I just always loved Southern California. Every time I'd gone to a conference or visited donors here, I thought this is this is paradise. You know, it's it's amazing. I'm right now I'm about 10 minutes from the beach and I live here on campus and in uh, the, the administrative and faculty housing. And so I'm sort of in this great spot next to Newport Beach. And uh, so I just, I toured around, I toured the plans, uh, looked at the plans for the expanded medical center, uh, which we are now completing. We'll have the hospital done in 25. So uh, so I was able to be a part of that huge expansion and a new medical center. Um, and so that, that did it. I flew out here, beautiful weather, the beach, a great project, a great challenge. Uh, they wanted us to raise. Uh, so I was health. I, I was originally hired as the associate vice chancellor uh, for health advancement. So my goal was to raise a billion dollars uh, for this expansion. Uh, and about uh, six months into that, you know, implementing the Grateful Patient program, and uh, I was uh, called to to move into this role, the vice chancellor role, uh, for the whole campaign to get this uh, a two billion dollar uh, campaign. Uh, rolling. And so what an opportunity, you know, sometimes timing works out really well. So I, I wanted to come to Southern California. I love the UC system. Uh, I already knew quite a bit about it, but I didn't know as much about uh, Irvine, but 
uh, now that I do, I, I just, uh, you know, it's just a really, really unique opportunity. Um, and, uh, one I like to talk a lot about because it's just been incredible, but yes, health brought me out here and we, we have completed that, that project. We're at about, we're just a little bit shy of 1.5 billion in the campaign so far. Uh, it's a 10 year campaign. And so, uh, based on the current numbers, we'll go over that goal here before the 2025 60th anniversary of UCI celebration. So what are you most excited about having accomplished since you've arrived? And then what is the big ambition of where you think you could go from here? I also just have to say, it is such a stunning area. My family and I did a 10-month RV journey at the beginning of the pandemic with our three boys. And one of our absolute favorite stops was at the Newport Dunes Campground, uh, which is, I don't know, nine minutes from you or something like that right now. Uh, Newport Dunes Waterfront Resort. That was our, you know, that is a, that is five-star campground. Let's just put it that way. Most of our campgrounds were not quite that nice. Yeah, you're right. No, it's, it is beautiful. It's just an incredible area. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you got to experience it. Um, so in terms of, of, uh, sort of success stories or things I'm really proud of, one of them is that medical center that, that is, um, that was really something that I wanted to see for the County, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine sometimes when you think about somewhat affluent areas like Orange County, California, it's not that the whole entire county is affluent. There's lots of need. And so this is an area that I consider to be a, a, a and based on the on the numbers, was an underserved area medically. And so it needed additional hospitals. And and um, and so I'm I'm very proud of that project. I think that uh, what we've also seen as I mentioned, the university will be 60 in 2025. So it's a fairly young university in the grand scheme of higher education. And so where I've seen the university go in terms of these rankings has been incredible. We're a top 10 U.S. News and World Report university. Um, lots of great rankings around uh, the sustainability. We're the number one cool school in the nation. Uh, lots of lots of amazing rankings. So that, that was also very attractive. And I've been, uh, to me, uh, as a place to to be able to to raise support, because we have so many great things to be able to talk about. So that sustainability piece is going to be a, actually something we're launching right now is a sort of a renewed sustainability push, bringing all of our schools together to think about really big ideas um, in terms of what the university can do for the world. Uh, this is a, a global issue, and and so I'm I'm most proud of the fact that we've made such strides around building up faculty chairs, building scholarships, creating access to higher education to, to individuals and groups that may not have had that, that access uh, before. Um, and so it's been, uh, that's why I say it's truly a, a unique place. Our numbers are, are uh, wonderful among, you know, we're, we're over 50% uh, first-generation college students. Uh, and for a University of California campus, many of our campuses are are close to those numbers, uh, but it's it's really a, a, an incredible mission. I'm proud of. It's amazing, it shows, and I think the you know one of the commonalities in meeting a lot of advancement leaders through this medium and others is um, the more that we can position our work as solving problems and less about raising money, the better off we are. So, like viewing UC Irvine as a platform to improve healthcare delivery in Orange County, you believe that it's obvious you believe that, and that is the message that hopefully resonates and like seeing UC Irvine as a platform to solve sustainability issues, not just in California, but hopefully nationally and globally, like that is more of the positioning that we need in this sector. Um, it's got to be about solving a problem and, uh, uh, you know, solving problems of access for first gen is certainly something that, that resonates with our, with our audience for sure. Thank you. Tell me about the team, uh, are you hiring right now? If folks want to stay in touch, what's a good way to, to do that? No, thank you for that question. We are hiring. Uh, so we have about 220 staff, uh, here at UCI that, uh, are involved, involved in either, uh, advancement or our alumni relations at the, at the alumni association, uh, lots of positions right now. So we are, um, probably among the organizations and maybe a few right now that are sort of staffing up a bit. Uh, we're looking at uh, the successful completion of this campaign, and then what what comes next? 
Uh, and there's a lot that comes next after this. And so, uh, like many organizations, there's been a lot of turnover through COVID and, and it's changed a lot of the ways our organizations operate, uh, brought in a lot of flexibility, things that I would have never really thought about five years ago, that the way our industry might look, it, it has all changed. And, uh, you know, I have my, my thoughts about that. I think, again, our business is a relationship business. So I'm I'm looking to bring on more people that are are uh, that want to represent a, a wonderful cause, a wonderful organization, uh, but also are thinking about uh, you know how important those relationships are and wanting to be there to to make that happen. And so um, while many like we are with uh, many other organizations uh, a bit flexible, I'm really trying to build up our our relationship team, the folks that are going to be out there uh, making those contacts. You mentioned earlier, and you've hinted at it uh, throughout the conversation, that COVID changed things. You know, you used to be a road warrior now, maybe not as much. Like, how do you envision, and I feel like more broadly, we've been in a little bit of this tug of war between back to office, lean into remote, hybrid, who knows? Like, it, it'll it'll play out, um, but there's definitely a bit of a tug of war right now. What do you, what do you reflect on? What are the positives? What are the challenges? Um, and then I guess where where are you all on that spectrum? So I, yeah, that's a great question, Brent. I think I think first and foremost, it, I think it made us all take a little bit of a step back and think about what's important. You know, what's important in our lives, our health, our families, our, our the people around us. Um, and so I think that that's that's changed a lot. And then we, of course, we we all uh, had quite a bit more time with those loved ones. <laughs> Uh, you know, potentially not being able to be out and traveling and eating out and all those things. So I think, I think that uh, on on one side, uh, probably many of us are far more thankful and and thoughtful about our lives and that balance between work, family, uh, you know, time to relax and recharge. Uh, and so that's that's a, to me a very good thing. I think the uh, the other side of that a little bit is that. You know, we got out of some habits that we, you know, we were, I think I would have said before COVID, uh, especially for UC Irvine, you know, we were pretty hard charging, moving towards that campaign goal. And then everything sort of stopped. Everyone went home and we had to sort of regroup. And so I feel like now many organizations, us included, are sort of in this rebuilding of staff, of what positions we need, how to be efficient uh, to get the production where it was to pre-COVID levels. Uh, I feel like we're, we're we've done well with the production side, thanks to so many generous people in our communities. Our donors are still giving. They gave through COVID. They continue to give. It did change the priorities a little bit. Uh, I see that um, there's uh, a health tie to many more gifts than there were before. Even if they're for a school that's not traditionally in the health field, they're looking at you know engineering and looking at health research or in physical sciences or bio, biological sciences. And they're asking more questions about you know, human health uh, and how they can support those areas. And so that's been a, a great shift. And now it's sort of getting back to efficient systems to be able to handle all these inquiries and, and, and all of the, the things that we have to do. We found, uh, probably not surprisingly, certain processes like uh, things like as simple as check processing have slowed down because Sometimes people, you know, there, there's there's a bit of flexibility in work and maybe some people are not in the office certain days or they're working remotely and things that actually need a, you know, a, a hand on to hand off to the next person. Uh, you know, we've had to find technology solutions to make sure we can keep those processes sharp. Um, when you think about peers that you rely on do you you know who's on your speed dial uh, if you're uh, you know and you think about time at AM or in the healthcare sector or maybe now uh in the UC uh kind of system community for example like who are some of the other advancement leaders you've really enjoyed getting to know I you know I mentioned Glenn Pittsford early on because he was the person that brought me into this field and he was my mentor at AM for many many years he's he's just been uh incredible incredible and in, in the you know, getting me into this field and getting me acclimated fast and, and uh, really, really led to the success that I've had. Uh, Ed Davis was the president of the UCI, I'm sorry, the Texas A&M Foundation. And, uh, you know, he was always somebody who just kind of 
you know, when you're, when you're a new gift officer, you're looking at the president of the foundation and thinking, wow, you know, that's how do they do all of this and, and, you know, raise this much money. And so I, and he was just so easy to, you know, go into his office and sit down and talk about, you know, career growth and, and, uh, you know, what came next. Um, you know, and then I've, at, uh, at, uh, Baylor, uh, Scott and White, Scott and White first, uh, Nancy Birdwell was, was a mentor of mine. She really, uh, she was the, the, uh, chief development officer there took me under her wing and really, uh, me and the leadership team, she really developed wonderful leaders, uh, while we were all there. Um, and, and through that, that merger process, uh, she retired right towards the end of that, um, uh, process that allowed me to have some additional opportunities uh, there. So uh, just, to, but I, it, it'd be hard if, if I, if I really thought about it, I could, I could write a a long list of people that, I mean, we've all depended on each other and there's just so many people that have been uh, really influential and instrumental in, in, in the success that, that, that I've had, not on my own, but as a team. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, it's really been a pleasure learning a lot more about you in a short amount of time. And uh, such a such a fun uh, kind of varied entry point into the sector, but it, it's clear that uh, you know you found the right fit and your you know passion for the work broadly and specifically for the organizations you've served is so clear. And I'm sure that that rubs off on your team and your community. So thanks for for sharing. Well, Brent, thank you, and thanks to the audience for listening. I, I'm happy to help anybody that uh, needs my help or wants to talk. I'm. I want to give back as well. Well, that'll be a great way to conclude then, Brian. I know you're active on LinkedIn. Is that a good way for folks to connect with you or is there another medium you'd prefer? Yeah, LinkedIn is perfect. That's fantastic. Please reach out to Brian. If you listen to this episode and want to stay in touch, mention you heard him on the Raise podcast and and thank you again, Brian. It's it's a privilege. And so with that, I'm going to close today's episode uh, with Brian Hervey from UC. Irvine. Thank you, Brian, and take care, everybody. 